0: Ah, great. Have a seat. Get settled in. This is a tough topic today, so we're going to dive into crossroads. Um, but before I get into... Con- <laughs> anyway, but yeah, uh, in this day and age, reviews are really important, and if, if you're kind enough to write a v- review, I would really appreciate that, okay? So anyway, advertisement and uh, personal stuff aside, we're talking about crossroads. We're, we're doing a series that... Um, introduces us to some of the really tough questions I don't know if you've ever stood in the crossroads of, of your Christian faith if you're a believer here this morning, I don't know if you've ever been challenged by something that you've heard or somebody has said this is this is the way I understand this and it's put you at a crossroads you know a couple of weeks ago we talked about you know the Bible itself and when people say the Bible's just written by by men you know and right away you know the background is. Can't be a divine book. It can't be a book that's you know all about you know divine things. It's just something generated by men to control people, control society, you know, all kinds of you know stuff that lies behind that. That was a couple of weeks ago. Last week we talked about you know um, if we're really going to be brutally honest, we filter everything that we call truth through our own grid. No matter, no matter what it is. You could be a believer here this morning, a non-believer, but truth is just a really difficult thing. We filter truth through our personal biases, you know, experience, all that kind of stuff. So um, truth is a really difficult thing, even though Jesus Christ himself said he was not only God incarnate, but truth personified, that he is Truth. So we we talked about that last week. This week we're going to talk about a really difficult, difficult topic. And the topic this morning is when people say God is cruel and violent. When they look at God and they say, you know, if you read things about, you know, passages in the Old Testament, God doesn't fare really well. And we're going to focus on uh, a a part of the Old Testament today called the Conquest, when God took the people of God out of, you know, Egypt and and brought them into the Promised Land. But the voyage, the journey into the Promised Land was a pretty violent journey. And uh, a lot of people, and I know a a lot of personal friends really struggle with that particular part of the Old Testament. And in fact, um, I have a quote here from, uh, from uh, someone that uh, Richard Dawkins, out of his book, The God Delusion. And this is what he says on page 31. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, phileocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a mouthful, isn't it? From the God Delusion, page 31, that's how many people in our world think of God at times when they read certain portions of the Bible and see him in that particular light. Now, for some of us in the Old Testament, we struggle with those areas where God is commanding things that in our modern North American mindset seems really difficult to reconcile, especially when we reconcile a God who is good, a God who does good, and a God who is loving and caring and merciful and compassionate and all of those things. So if you have your notes today, um, this is going to be kind of like a, 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 a... an apologetic for a period of time in the Old Testament that we don't fully understand in our particular mindset, okay? So I'm going to read a passage out of Deuteronomy just to get us started a little bit. And this is a passage that introduces some of what is going to be happening in what we're going to be talking about. Now, uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel uh, just as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, okay? And this is what he says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay. My favorite there is the Girgashites. Like, what a name, right? Um, These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them, annihilate them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them, Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. Okay? Here's here's a purpose statement to some of these annihilation statements that is part of the reason why God is so concerned with a pure nation that's going into the promised land. Okay? For they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Okay? That's a very problematic uh, passage. Now, if you want to learn more about this, let let me recommend three books to you um, that will help you kind of manage a little bit of this a bit. Um, First book is The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright. It's a really good book. Some of this, and some of this material is actually taken from these books. Um, Second book is Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, um, that deals with some of these big questions. And then the third book is Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric by Bill Webb and Gord Oste, um, two professors that I personally. Uh, know and uh, actually have, have taught with, and one of them was actually one, my New Testament professor at one time. So, uh, and Gord replaced me when I uh, was transferred out of the Hebrew department, so he, both those authors I'm really familiar with, but they wrote a really excellent, you know, book on those passages. So some of it, some of what we're going to talk about comes out of those passages, and as Christians, can we, can we just say this is really hard? Can we just admit that, okay, this morning, that this is really hard, all right? So I want to give you, as we begin this, four things you can't do to try to justify this, all right? You can't do this. Um, In fact, this is the way some people have tried to justify um, these brutal passages in the Old Testament because they're going to end up in dead ends. So here's what we can't do. We can't. We can't say the Old Test- We can't say that um, uh, an Old Testament problem that the New Testament corrects. We can't. We can't say that. We can't just say. You know, there are a number. In fact, there's a number of modern authors today that just we just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is an old covenant. We're in the New Covenant. The Old Testament doesn't uh, doesn't matter anymore. You know, so we can just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Now that sounds like a really convenient solution. It pits one testament against the other. But the fact of the matter is that if we do that, it distorts the historical and theological continuity between the two. There's a lot of continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament you can't ignore. It's, it, you know, and, the new, and the Old Testament sets up the New Testament. So you just can't ignore that part of it and just say the Old Testament doesn't count because there's so much in the New Testament that's actually rooted and has foundation in the Old Testament. So you just can't jettison the one in favor of the other. You just can't. The second thing you can't do is you can't say that the God of the Old Testament has unrelieved anger issues. That's, that's not, you know, not going to work either Either, but you know, if 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 you listen carefully in some Christian circles, that is what they intimate. They intimate that the God of the Old Testament is different. He, you know, he hadn't grown up yet. You know, he had unrelieved issues, and he had to deal with those unrelieved issues. And that's creeped into the psyche of many, many people who see a different God in the Old Testament than they do in the New Testament. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, I've said many times, the fastest way to fail one of my courses in, in, at the college and seminary is, is, is write or say to me, the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. That's the fastest way to fail a course, okay? Because the Old Testament is just as much grace as the New Testament, just as much grace. And we live under the law of Christ, by the way, in the New Testament, if you are a believer here this morning. So you can't just, you know, treat one in, a kind, in this kind of like a theological bracket and give the New Testament a whole different theological, you know, bracket. And the problem with God has it having unrelieved anger issues is that it seems that the entire Old Testament is about brutality, is about you know, anger issues, is about God's judgment or anything like that. And that's nothing, that's the farthest thing from the truth. The Old Testament is just as much about God's grace, about God's love, about God's mercy. You know, you talk from Abraham to Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, there's all kinds of passages that talk about the caring, loving, merciful, compassionate nature about, about, about God, right? And the other part of it is that we treat the New Testament as never talking about judgment, as never talking about, you know, the brutality of the, of, of the ages. Do you realize that Jesus talked more about hell than any other person in history? Other than Dante, maybe. Okay? But the only topic that occupied Jesus' conversation more than hell was money, you know? And the reason why, because money was the fastest thing to divert people's attention away from God. All right? So that's, you know, to, to, to kind of say the New Testament's all love and all that is a bit misleading, but to say that, you know, the Old Testament is all about judgment, that is absolutely wrong, absolutely misleading as well. In fact, do you know how many times the book of Deuteronomy talks about God's love? It's one, of the past, it's one of the Old Testament books that has a lot to say about love. Leviticus, when Jesus, um, when, when Jesus was asked, you know, what, what are the two great commandments? You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. By the way, it comes out of the book of Deuteronomy. And then love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, comes out of the book of Leviticus. Two really strong books on the law. But they're all about love. And there's just a lot of passages that, that you know, are, are here that, you know, talks about that. Um, and, and, and the other thing, too, is that all the writers in the New Testament affirmed all the stories in the Old Testament. You know, they never, you know, many times in the life of Jesus, he affirmed stories in the Old Testament without even questioning them. For instance, Jonah and the fish. Jesus talked about him being in the belly of the fish, Three, you know, the, the, exactly the, the most difficult part of the Jonah story. Jesus affirmed. Okay, Never, never, never does a New Testament writer critique God in the Old Testament as being anything other than God. Okay? All right, here's number three. Uh, another, another thing you can't do is you can't say, well, the Israelites misunderstood God. You know, they, you know, they, they you know, heard something and, and, and did something totally different. They just misunderstood God. You know, this is really convenient. Just blame the Israelites and sort of take God out of the equation because they misunderstood God. Now, there are times where, where people misunderstand God. But what's interesting is God usually corrects them. Okay, it usually doesn't just let it go, and, uh, and and all of that kind of stuff. As nice as that may be, um, but the other problem is that the conquest of the promised land is never explained away as a colossal mistake. It's never explained away, you know. In fact, the conquest is treated as it was part of God's unfolding plan. It's not ever treated as a big mistake in history. It is seen as part of God's unfolding plan, okay? And, and besides, don't you think it'd be a little tough to say, Moses misunderstood God? Wouldn't that be a bit of a stretch if we did that, okay? And, and, and that's just a pretty critical mistake. If that was a... If, if, if the whole... Um, you know, conquest in the Old Testament was a big misunderstanding. You would almost feel that God would have corrected that big mistake because that's a big mistake, and it affects it affected people. The last thing is, you know, it's an allegory for spiritual warfare, and an allegory is this, you know, totally fictional narrative created to deliberately teach a spiritual truth through a you know a real story or whatever, but. You know that just doesn't fly. Is you know the problem is the people in the stories are real. It wasn't allegorical Israelites who attacked, and it wasn't allegorical Canaanites that died, or these seven nations that died. They were real people. There is an earthly, historical reality to the stories that affected people in real in tragic ways so we can't just pass it off as allegorical okay so don't go down any of those paths because right away you're gonna you're gonna hurt your own credibility your own integrity to the text all of that stuff these are real hurtful stories and you know God's at the center of them so how do we deal with them okay so I'm gonna give you some points that you need to consider these are only points to consider this is not rationalizing, I don't have to stand here and justify God to you or anything like that. But there are points to consider that are really points to maybe give you some more perspective about these really difficult things. So, you know, of all the all the years I've been a pastor and, and taught at the school, this is the the section. There's two things that challenge Christianity the most, and it's the ugly part of the old testament that i always that you know people who are wrestling with faith and god and christianity this is the part that they wrestle with the other part that they wrestle with is uh why does god allow evil you know suffering and evil okay those are the two biggies in christianity so I, i thought as part of this series i would deal with this as as best as i could head on and hopefully it'll give you some fuel in your own life That if you hit a crossroad because of this, I know people who have walked away from the Christian faith because of just this section of the Bible. Okay? And sort of ignore everything else. And sort of ignore everything else. All right? So here are just some things to think about. Okay? Number one is evil and the justice of God. Evil and the justice of God. In terms of the nations that came under judgment, you know, they were conducting evil practices for a long, 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 long time. That's that's One of the things that we we don't understand is we get to the passage of the conquest and we say, oh, just out of the blue, God decided to attack this nation and remove them from the promised land, etc., etc., when we talk about the conquest. The problem is, is God had predicted for 400 years prior to that that the sin of the Canaanite nations would get to a point where God would have to judge them. This was a 400-year process. God was gracious to them for 400 years prior to that. In fact, you know, you know, archaeological studies, historical studies, all kinds of studies show that those nations, you know, were were about as far removed from God as possible. Yes, did they have their gods? Yeah, but they sacrificed children on a regular basis like these nations did stuff that was detestable to God. Whether you want to agree with that or not, that's, that's not you know, the arguable thing when it comes to why God judged them. But for years, they were nations that were sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. And finally, God had to deal with it and decided to judge them. Their wickedness kept increasing and increasing, and God, in His graciousness, allowed it to continue at any point, if these nations had have repented, turned around, who knows what would, have ha- what would have happened. But the conquest probably would have looked a lot different. All of these things would have looked a lot different. Okay? Um, you know, so we don't, you know, we see the judgment side of God in this, but we don't see the mercy for 400 years. Okay? And, and in fact, that's an applicable thing today. God is tolerating much of what is happening in our world today. Because that's the mercy component that we don't see. But when God finally does start to judge things, we're going to go, oh, where was God all this time? And it's like, "Okay, we've been telling you for years. We've been saying for years that God has been merciful. God has been compassionate. God has been gracious. God has demonstrated that day in and day out and day in and day out and tolerated and tolerated and tolerated until such time. God's grace is boundless and endless, but it does have a time limit. Okay? And that's what happened to this. Um, the conquest, by the way, you know, and, and of course, we think of Joshua and Moses entering into the promised land. Or, you know, Moses didn't enter into the promised land, handed the thing off to Joshua. Joshua went in, but we cannot think in terms that they were motivated by the act of killing a people group. The conquest was more about ending the Canaanites' religious and cultural practices than it was anything else. The problem wasn't people in, per se, but the idolatry and the religious practices of those nations that God was concerned with. Okay, there's, there's number one. So God is a God of justice. We talk all the time about justice in a very positive way, but we don't like dealing with justice in the negative sense. That when evil does rise, and in fact, you know, I've, I've said this many times, we are afraid to even use the terminology evil in our culture today. I dare you to listen to the news and some of the most heinous things that are happening around the world, they never apply the word evil to it. I don't know what it is in our world that has taken away the terminology of evil from, from, our, our, you know, from our media. We're afraid to even call something heinous evil anymore. And I don't know why. I don't know what happened. I don't know what the cultural shift was. And I understand, you know, I understand all the other stuff behind it. But there's just a time where we have to stand up and say, you know, this is wrong. This is evil. This is not what normal people do. This is not what a humanity does to each other. This is not what people who live by grace and love and faith and all that stuff. This is not what we do to others. Okay, let's call it what it is and let's deal with it as opposed to hiding behind some kind of facade that just kind of says, well, you know, anyway, rant aside, okay, but the justice of God is real in a positive and in a negative sense, okay, because we may ignore it, doesn't mean God's going to ignore it, okay? Number two, textual isolation leads to incomplete conclusions, as disturbing as the conquest is, the story of the conquest is a single episode in a single generation. Okay? Let's, it's not like the entire Old Testament is all about God's brutality to other nations. When it talks about you know, this conquest that was sanctioned by God, and you know, Israelites, you go in and take the promised land. This is a really narrow slice of history and a narrow slice of the Old Testament. Okay? The actual invasion and destruction in the conquest was one generation. A very small slice of the actual time period of what happened. Okay? Uh, there are other wars in the Old Testament, there's no doubt about it, but they are portrayed differently than the conquest. Much differently than the conquest. It would be wrong to say that every war was instigated by God or he was continually on the warpath. That would be wrong to say. The conquest is a unique and limited historical event. Okay? As, as difficult as it is, it's a very you know, small slice of the whole thing. Okay, number three. Aren't we having fun? Yeah, yeah okay. <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, honestly, this is a tough su- subject, okay? Arrogant victories become fuel for future judgment. This is what I mean by this. God makes it really clear to the Israelites, this is not because of your righteousness. It's not because you're better people. It's not because you know, of your integrity that you're going to go and you're going to take possession of the land. But it's on the account of the wickedness of the other nations, Okay? Right? Deuteronomy 9.5 says, "...it is not for your righteousness or for your uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." Notice the terminology in there. God made this oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and waited like 400 years to have it happen until the judgment time became, you know, time for God to deal with it. So Israel's mission was clear. They were not to be influenced by the Canaanite wicked practices and cultural systems that fostered and endorsed them. And they were not to be arrogant as God's instruments, for they too would fall under God's judgment if they fell into the same practices of the Canaanites. That was the warning, okay? All right, I've used you as an instrument of my judgment here, but don't think for a second that you could do the practices of the Canaanites, and I'm not going to have to deal with you either. Okay, and that's, and that's, historically, if you understand the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you know that God had to deal with the Israelite people. In fact, the second exodus, the, the, the second um, captivity, was based on the fact that they fell into idolatry themselves. And God promised that if you fall into these practices yourself, you, I'm going to have to deal with you as well. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that they got away scot-free with everything. God, and we talked about God's justice, God's judgment. God is fair to everyone. And that might not be a good thing for you. <sighs> okay? Obedience, disobedience. Right? For a believer, it's discipline. For an unbeliever, it's judgment. That's the difference. And there's a big difference to that. Discipline is meant to make you better, whole. It's meant to correct. It's meant to put you back on the right path. It's motivated by love. They look the same sometimes. The end result can look the same sometimes. But the motivation and the reason behind it are different. We don't like it. I don't like it. Nobody likes it, but it's there for a reason. You know. So that's so the Israelites can never become arrogant about God using them in this way. And as we and as we know from the Old Testament, they absolutely were dealt with because they fell into idolatry as well. Number four is the nature. Of war and the harem, what we call the Herem principle. Um, by the way, do you know that in the Bible, warfare is never called, never called a holy war ever? Just a little if you get that on a you, know, a game show or something, you know how to answer that question now. Okay. Um, the Hebrew term harem, by the way, is the word that it gets translated as annihilate or destroy. Um, it, in, the, in the English lexicons, it's about extermination. Okay, this term of, of harem. it has a sense of devoting something to God by completely destroying it. Okay, so. There's, there's a nuance to this that we've got to understand. It can be translated as a ban, a word that in the context is something that is given to God by complete destruction. In a battle or war, in... I'm going to say war throughout the ages, no matter what time period. War is ugly. War is messy. War is tragic. War has atrocities that we can't possibly imagine. In fact, I could, I could recount uh, what war atrocities look like in this, in this particular day and age that are war atrocities that have been sort of mimicked over the centuries. Do you realize almost every war atrocity has to do with rape? Women are raped, okay? That is a common war atrocity, and that was no different in this time period. Women were raped, children were raped, by the way. Other atrocities is that w- they would, you know, bring up the parents and do incredible things to the children in front of the parents. They would, you know, skin people alive. Assyrians were known of, by of impaling family members all along the roads and they would do it all the way on the road on the way back to their capital. So anybody that was going to the Assyrian Empire would be intimidated right away by all the bodies that are um, impaled on the roads on the way there. I could go on and on and on and on because the rules of engagement when it comes to war is basically that there are no rules. And when human hatred Is allowed to fully be exploited. We are very creative at hurting others. It's no different in this time period. When the Harem principle gets implemented in the conquest, okay, when it gets declared, there was no material profit. For the Israelites, no plunder was allowed, no rape was allowed. And in fact, if you recall from the passage that we read, it even says, if you, you know, come across the women, you're, you, you need to, you have to marry them, okay? This passage says, you know, don't marry, interrelate, but there's other passages that talk about if you're going to absolutely you know, find yourself in a weak moment, you need to marry them, okay? Women and children, there are other parts of the battle scenery where women and children were spared. Even the cattle and animals were spared, okay? So when Harem principle was applied, okay, there was no plunder allowed for the Israelites. They weren't weren't allowed to do that. They weren't allowed to harm any, like, rape or, any, or pillage or anything, the rules of engagement were totally different. Totally, totally different. Because God instructed war in a totally different way than what it was typically allowed to in that day and age. Okay? Now, this is not an excuse but the rules of engagement for God were totally different than what the rules of engagement were for other nations, and, and all of that stuff. You know, um, in my Isaiah class, we go through a whole, a whole um, half lecture on the Assyrian war um, rules of engagement that the Assyrians had for war, and it's quite brutal. It's absolutely brutal. Okay, and I, because Isaiah talks about some of the Stuff that is happening in the culture. Okay, um, here's, here's my last point. Here's my last point. Okay, in our present world, we need to admit this is not easy to fully understand. That's point number five. In this uh, in our present world, we have to admit this is not easy for us to understand. We don't in North America, um, especially in, in you know recent history since you know, the mid-40s, we don't know what war looks like. We don't understand the atrocities of war. We don't understand that, you know, we're probably in a time period where we have not experienced war for a long period of time. We're not, you know, we're, we're part of, of a nation that, that hasn't experienced war the way the rest of the world has experienced war over longevity of many of those nations. Okay? So, real people were impacted by this. Real people were hurt by this. But, we can't deny the fact that it's in the Bible. But as we know, That out of that time period, there came a lot of things in God's plan that worked out because of the nation of Israel being established, because of the messianic hope being established, because of the nature of understanding what a society committed to God looked like. There's just so many things that we could go. But the fact of the matter is in our modern mindset, we can can just be so troubled by that. And you know what? Can I just say it's okay to be troubled by it? In fact, God is God. We don't fully understand God from time to time. There are moments in our lives where we wonder why. There are moments in our lives where God knows things that we don't. And understand things that we don't. There are times that we may not fully embrace the things that God does. But at the same time, God is God. God is God. And what is really tragic about something like this is that we can take this one unique event in the Old Testament. And we can make it cloud everything else that God has done. And we can sort of distort our entire picture of God because of this one event in the Old Testament that I've said, too, is had different war ethics, had very narrow time period that it happened. And had consequences, even for the nation of Israel, when they didn't obey God fully themselves. But the fact of the matter is the Bible overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly presents God as compassionate, merciful, as loving, as gracious, with an open invitation to everyone to embrace His truth. And in fact, God loved us so much, so much, that He sent His one and only Son, Many of you have heard that before. But the ultimate act of God's love was self-sacrifice. Nothing, nothing, you know, in our lives can overtake the sacrificial death of Christ for our sins, for our dark hearts. And to be reminded that God wants us to be in a relationship with Him. So can we, like, put things in perspective, please? And celebrate the fact that we're on the, this end of history. <laughs> and this end of the cross. And the resurrection and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray for some of you it's helped sort of like alleviate some of the tension. It might not take it all away, but you know, if that's in your heart because God's made you a really gracious, loving person, that's God's gift to you, don't lose it. Don't lose it. But God is God, and God knows better than we ever could. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know this has been a really tough passage and a really tough thing to talk about, but Lord, we don't need to apologize for you. We don't even need to defend you. But Lord, it it is heartbreaking when people take an event that is really a small slice of your actions in history and use it to judge you overall. We heard that quote from a prominent atheist at the beginning, and I know many people who treat you in that regard as well. But Lord, I pray that your grace would continue and your mercy would continue, and hearts would be open to the reality of the majority of what you present, and the fact that you sent your Son And the fact that we are sinners and the fact that we need your grace and your redemption and the forgiveness of sins and that, Lord, you are a God of justice, and we thank you for that. So, Lord, I pray for someone today who's been wrestling with this, that hopefully it's given them more things to ponder. If they are at the crossroads with you on certain of these issues, that, Lord, they'll choose to stay with you that you will just speak into their lives and into their hearts and give them more of your grace in order that they could see your true heart. In Jesus' name, amen.